Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Christine Taylor. Christine, how are you? I'm good, thanks Ian. How are you? Really good, thank you. We had the pleasure of meeting when our daughters went to school together way back when. Uh, Mine's just turned 18. Yours must be fast approaching. Yes, turning 18 very soon. Exactly, yeah. So 18 years ago almost. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what a journey it's been watching them. And I know you've got other kids as well, but uh, yeah, it's there's never a dull moment, right? No, it's a busy time, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Christine, you're a personal trainer and a nutritionist, which to me is such a fantastic combination. Can you tell everyone a bit more about what you do and what you've learned over the journey? Oh, sure, yeah. So um, the fitness journey started first with me. So I was at university in England doing actually a business studies and HR marketing degree. And I was looking for work and I was at the gym training and so I was offered classes to um, to teach at the gym. I thought that's great because I love exercising and so I did a qualification um, to be a group fitness instructor and at the time my dad said, oh, what are you spending the money on that for, you know, you're at uni and I said, dad, I'm going to earn more money. So I used to teach like a class or two classes and at the time I used to get £15 an hour which um, probably doesn't sound a lot, but just to put Pretty that good. in context. Yeah, if you were working at a pub or a restaurant at that time, it was about three pounds an hour. So I got 30 bucks, uh, so 30 pounds for the night. Yeah. And, um, and and it was really lucrative and I loved doing it. So that's where it started. And then I really wanted to have a career in the fitness industry. That's where my I was interest was really ignited. But I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work in terms of um, – actually paying the bills full-time. So I went into um, more of an HR role with my degree and just kept teaching fitness part-time. I did early morning classes before work, lunchtime classes, evening classes. And then when I met Matt and moved to Australia, I got an international transfer with the company I was with um, and did three days in the Sydney office and found out I was expecting again. I had already had Isabella in the UK. And I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to work full time with a baby and be pregnant, have a second child? I really can't do the corporate 12 hour day anymore. I'm going to set up newborn fitness and try. This is the perfect opportunity to set it up. So I set up um, predominantly postnatal 
uh, fitness, meeting mums along the way. And it just developed from there. I thought I might go back to the corporate world and thankfully I haven't needed to. It's just been, I just love helping people to get fit and healthy. And um, obviously it's evolved over the years. I've done different courses, but, and nutrition was such a critical part of that, that I was giving some advice within my scope of practice. And I decided to actually do a course um, and that was the one thing that came out of lockdown for me was that I was able to study a lot more and I managed to get my qualification to be a certified nutritionist. I had done um, a nutrition qualification in the UK um, prior to moving here and parts of that were recognised and not. So anyway, I just needed to update it and get certification here so that I'm insured here and can give nutrition advice in Australia. So, yeah, that's what I did last year. So, um, yeah, really works hand in hand together. I can't, you know, the journey, particularly with health, has to be both both components, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I want to get further into that. I just want to, I just had a realisation, like newborn fitness, like, hello, I'd never worked that out before, but you had a newborn and... (laughs) Like, yes, that's where it came from. Yeah, and then when I started started sort of diversifying out from pre and postnatal, I was like, do I keep the name? And I did because a lot of people feel kind of reborn again when they yeah. start a new lifestyle. So it still fits, I think, with my business model because um, it's very much like when you lose 20 or 30 kilos, when you start to be able to run or do a triathlon or do anything that you haven't been able to physically do, um, or if your blood pressure drops, if your cholesterol drops, as you start all those things, you are a new form of yourself. So, yeah. Yeah, it actually fits perfectly. Now, for me, along my journey, and you described some things there that that I went from not being able to do to being able to do, something that has really come through in the last few months for me from the conversations I've been having with people is just how important nutrition has been for that. Like I'd always been Mm. active, so I I just assumed that there was the activity. But the more Mm. that I having conversations with people, how they they're exercising so much and they're feeling like they're not actually able to move the dial with their weight. So hmm. can you tell me how you see that, how important it is to make sure that you're actually getting the balance of both of them, both nutrition and exercise, and, and yeah. also specifically that's the right type for each person as well? Yeah, I mean, it is so individual because um, everybody's um, physical activity level or power as we call it is different so you could be the same age and the same height and the same weight as someone but your job would determine your power so you could be someone that works a, as a nurse and you're running up and down all day long or you could be someone that's a secretary and sitting still all day long and so your power is very different so um, your metabolism will, will be set and vary to that as well um, the other really critical thing what, when I train people like on TLC, for example, is we don't just do the exercise classes. Your daily steps are really important. So um, keeping your total daily energy expenditure up um, around 10,000 steps a day minimum, um, which would mean, you know, maybe a walk at lunchtime, a walk before, um, before work or after work. If you're not in an active job, it makes a huge difference. And then I guess there's two things. Like obviously everyone's probably heard move more, eat less. But it's much more complicated than that. You know, I see a lot of 
for example, perimenopause or menopausal women, um, your hormones play a factor. Um, your, your macros make an enormous difference to what you're, what you're so um, the three main macros being um, protein, fats and, and carbs, obviously. Now, carbohydrates and protein have the same calorific value. So you've got four calories per gram in that. Um, and so one would say, okay, well, if I'm counting calories like some um, meal plans would do, it doesn't matter. But, yes, it, it really does matter because if you are a long-distance runner, you're going to need a, a higher carbohydrate source. If you're looking to build muscle um, and um other factors, for example, I see young younger children that perhaps haven't developed um, and they're looking at hormone replacement with an endocologist, but also just looking at their diet and saying, okay, well, you're not eating anywhere near enough protein. And I know for my son, he would eat carbs till the cows came home and lots of yeah. bread and pasta, which is great because it's cheap and it's filling. But in order for his muscles to grow, which is what a lot of young boys are looking to do to develop their strength, in a positive way, um, yes. we need to look at the amount of protein, lean protein they're getting. And something as simple for us would be for Will to, to make a, a protein shake, you know, and have a fruit smoothie with a scoop of protein. And it's a really easy way to boost that. And, and it's quite um, successful in building your protein spindles, which when provided you've weight trained or done some resistance training, that those spindles will then thicken with that extra protein. So, um and we were chatting before, Ian, about immunity, about uh, protein in his immunity building macro. So when we're looking at cold and flu season and COVID, there are things that you can do that will boost your immunity, like eating more protein, getting outside and, and vitamin D and um, what, do you say vitamin, vitamin? Vitamin, vitamin D. Yeah, but- <laughs> vitamin D, um, a big boost for your immune system. And I coming from England was a real sun cream person like oh gonna burn gonna get skin cancer don't want to get wrinkly lather up with um, sunscreen because that's what you know we want to do with our kids but you do actually need some skin exposure so you know yeah. obviously in the summer you're not going to that but when you're going for your walk around the block with the dogs just leave your arms or your legs with some skin open you know so that you can actually absorb some of the vit d because um, your body really needs that. And amazingly, lots of people I know when they have their bloods done, their VIT-D is really low in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think it's because we cover ourselves and we have sunscreen on. 100%. That was where I got to as well. And so the suggestion was to take take a vitamin D supplement, So, mm. which I did for a short while, and then decided I would try exactly just get a bit more sun. Obviously, mm. sensible about it, not going out and getting – yeah. Burnt to a crisp, but just finding times. And I think, I mean, you mentioned there, you you know, if you're in a nine to five job or you're indoors, if you're a nurse or any of those sorts of roles, mm. well, then typically you're, you're missing sunlight so often. It's just so important that's for us right. to find those windows to get out. Yes, exactly right. And that's why a lunchtime walk around the block. And I know it's hard. People say, oh, I can't get away. But, you know, for your health, it's really important. Get those steps in, get a break mentally and get some sunshine on your face. Mm. all the research will say that the break away from your work will allow you to be far more productive after that break anyway. And so it's, mm. there's, so, there's so many reasons you can give yourself so many excuses why not to, but the reasons like from a scientific and a research based position just show that, yeah, the, the break's going to be long-term more beneficial. 
Absolutely. And I was in a pharmaceutical company yesterday where I do a corporate well-being sort of session at lunchtime. And we were talking about exactly that. They're saying, oh, I feel fantastic. All we do is some stretches. There's nothing too, you know, it's not hot and sweaty. We mobilize and we stretch and we get a bit of core strength and it's short and it's sweet. And they all say, oh, I feel fantastic. I'm trying to get my friend along. And they say they're too busy with work. And so when you tell your friend he's going to be far more productive but, you know, all the research shows that he will feel better mentally and he'll be far, his productivity will increase significantly after yeah. a quick recharge. So you're right. And yeah, I know yeah. it. You know it. It's like getting the message out there. Keep move, yeah. Movement is life. That's my saying. Movement is life. Who doesn't feel better when their body has moved? We all do. Hundred percent. For me, the movement used to be in corporate was um, I'd walk down to the coffee shop and get another coffee, but of course that uh, created a whole other problem and um, <laughs> really led to adrenal fatigue. So I think yeah. um, if anyone's in that position, that it's definitely something worth pursuing uh, at a fresh air break. Uh, the other thing that came to mind, Kristen, while you were talking was I did a fair few terms with you doing Pilates. And I started Pilates through necessity because my back gave out and I had a, a couple of, well, I had a defect and, a, and an old injury in my lower spine. Mm. But an interesting thing happened when I started doing it was my hips started hurting less, my knees started hurting less, my mm. ankles started hurting less because suddenly I wasn't relying on them to hold me up. It was all this natural core. And of mm. course, most of us are sitting at desks and we're not doing it. So is that as important or is that just me from a personal perspective or is that how important is that for people's uh, ability to be able to exercise at a, at a greater level to get that core strength back? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I think anyone, regardless of whether you enjoy um, soccer or rugby or basketball, uh, netball, whatever your sport is, or even if you're not a sporty person, actually, everyone should be doing Pilates because your core strength is fundamental or your postural muscles. And everything. Yeah. And you, if you find someone that can, you know, either regress it or progress the move, you're going to ha have all different levels in the class and it'll be something suitable for everyone. With the exception of, you know, there might be some specialist um, back injury that you'll need to see a specialist um, trainer about one on one. But for most people, Pilates is a huge, is a huge, of huge benefit. And I think we should start there, strengthening the postural muscles. And indeed, I've got, um, a group of girls at one of the private schools here and they're elite rowers um, and they are getting a really good stretch of me once a week and we're doing strengthening. They Their backs are very strong. They're muscularly very strong, but they don't stretch out in the, anywhere near enough. So we were just doing lots of stretching and their performance is, well, I can't take credit just because they're doing Pilates, but certainly their yeah. performance has improved with a, a number of factors that they've been working on. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's the power center, right? I imagine for rowing, yeah. core would be would be just yeah. be foundational. Yeah, but also if you think about the contraction, I mean, I said I say to a lot of teenagers that, that I train, how everyone wants these abdominal muscles. How yeah, many yeah. sit ups and crunches have you done in your life? Okay, how many backward movements have you done? I bet you hardly any. And yeah. for every muscle you've got, you've got an opposing muscle and you need to be balancing that out. So, you know, when I train for for young lads, they, they want to you know, bench press a heavier weight. For every lift yeah. that we do on bench, we need to strengthen the back. You need to, to work the opposing muscles. So it's just building a balanced program and, and, and educating people 
to that and and then the overall performance will improve significantly yeah and to me that would be the key part about seeing someone like yourself so that you know what you need to do specifically and making sure you get mm. that balance. Because if you're just hitting the gym mm. and just, you know, focusing on the bits you want to get bigger, well, then you're only yeah. teeing yourself up and get an injury or something later, right? Yeah. And, and we, all, we all enjoy training a particular area or want to focus. So it's just getting a balanced program where yep. you're doing a varied. And indeed, I think cross-training really is the way to go. I mean, obviously, if you're um, a professional in a sport, you've got to train in that. But making sure in addition to that, you are doing your stretching and your um, Pilates, you know, and, and looking at the whole program and having a swim or, or doing your meditation or your mindfulness or whatever it takes for you to to work at the, come at your, um, look at your performance in a holistic way rather than yep. just training because there's so much more to that for your health um, and fitness. Mm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to dig a bit deeper there because I know that what, what you're talking there about um, holistically, particularly for people carrying excess weight, like we carry so much from from a, a mental and emotional perspective. For a lot of men, and again, this is generally speaking, uh, we might carry a lot of that as physical pain and there are women that carry like fluid retention and all these different other ways of carrying it because they're literally carrying the weight of the world from looking after their children, all these sorts of things. And and so how do you help the different people that you see like change how they're thinking about things so they can come from more of that holistic perspective and not just how they maybe have shown been shown previously? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that it's a gradual process. I think, um, so for example, when I put on my socials like Instagram, the before and after photos of people that have lost weight with me, yeah. I always get an influx of inquiries. Oh my gosh, how did you do that? 30 kilos, I want that. I'm yeah. like, okay, this is this is what's involved. This is not a short fix. This is a process and, and, and this, this and this, and this is what you need to commit to because it, it really is. Um, I'm not a personal trainer um, that likes to hammer on about weight loss because for me, it's so much more than that. It's so much yeah. more. It's being able to see them run five kilometers when they couldn't walk around Rabbit Park when I meet them. It's for yeah. me to see them their self-confidence grow and then do something for themselves that they would never have been done for themselves before it's far far more about their mental health and well-being however when you're marketing <laughs> weight loss is always always going to be trumps you know in, in a marketing tool so you put those photos up and, and you know i'll say to clients yeah well it really is a conjunction of you know exercising more let's find something that gets you moving more and and, and just anything it doesn't matter if it's a bushwalk i do weekly bushwalks it could be a running club it can be working out at Ruddock Park if they want the social interaction, Pilates on a mat, anything. They can choose whatever they want to do just to start them moving and to start looking after their body. Um, and then we'll look at the nutrition in conjunction with that. And, and just simple, simple changes to start with. You can't um, generally say do this, this, and this, and this in, in one in the first week. You just might say, okay, this week I want you to increase your protein a little bit more and I want you to drink more water. And you might start with two two things. And then once they're in that habit and that habit is formed, you'll then change something else. I think sometimes that's the way to go. 
And I also really feel it has to be sustainable. Um, there are many gyms that will do like a, a six-week or eight-week challenge where you um, are on a very low-calorie diet for six weeks and you focus on doing as much exercise as you can for those six weeks. And, of course, they are, they are successful and there's a place for those for some people that want to do that. I'm not bashing them. I'm saying there is benefit in that for some people. Um, yep. But invariably, once they finish that, have they learned the tools? Um, most of the people I train are the main shopper, are the main cook. Have they learned the tools to be able to then move forward um, and cook their own lunches and dinners and for the family? And the other thing that I'm really mindful about is having teenage girls. So, you know, I can't sit there and have a separate meal to my family every night because, oh, is that me? No. Um, because, you know, I want to be able to sit and enjoy my family meals. We don't eat together every night, but sometimes we do. And it's important um, that there is a prevalence of, of eating disorders and uh, for males and females. And I think particularly with social media and the huge pressure. I mean, it was hard enough being a teenager when we were teenagers, but we yeah. add social media to the mix and it's just a nightmare for our teenage girls. It's really hard, the messaging yep. they get. And most of the photos may well be airbrushed or photoshopped, et cetera, and you know, snatched in at the waist, et cetera. But yeah. um, I think that the, the messages that we send need to be still really about health and, and being able to eat a family meal most of the time and prepare a meal is important. Yeah, and, and having teenage kids myself, I can, I can definitely relate to that. Being the role model rather than trying to expect them to do something that you're not even doing yourself, so important. One of the words you use there, uh, sustainable, I think that's true if you're trying to improve in any area of your life. If it's not going to be sustainable, if you're not teaching skills that people will be able to take forward and continue to use and continue to change habits, then again, it's just another one of those quick fixes that will do them a disservice because they'll need the, the help again in the not too distant future, right? Absolutely, and it's a lifestyle. That's the key thing I try to say. It is a lifestyle. It's a long-term lifestyle, your health. Um with the short fix, invariably, when weight is lost quickly, we always see a rebound. And in most cases, the research shows that you actually increase your weight. So you might lose 20 kilos over six weeks having a, a milkshake, uh, which tastes like cardboard and you feel hungry <laughs> and miserable the whole six weeks. And then yeah. you'll come back off it and you'll rebound. And most often you'll gain 25 kilos. You'll end up heavier than where you started at your set point. Mm, yeah so, yeah so um health is is really paramount yeah absolutely. Doing it in a healthy way. Mm. yeah you mentioned before that you moved from the uk over to here now mm. mostly when i talk grief it's fairly obvious examples of it but i imagine that in itself must have presented a whole lot of challenges given that you're going away from a life that you've known, you've only known that mm. way from like yeah. a cultural perspective. I know it's similar here, but but culturally different and away from all your friends that you've grown up with as well. Like how challenging yeah. is that? Yeah, I, I think I was underprepared for the enormity of it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, you fall in love and um, you marry someone that you love deeply and, and we actually had our first child over in the UK 
And um, I really wanted to give it a shot. I mean, I'd been to Australia before and loved it as a country. I think traveling as a single woman and moving here with a baby were perhaps <laughs> a little different. And um, I, I, I really missed having my mom and my family around, you know, when raising the babies. I did really miss that. I, I was blessed that my mother-in-law is a beautiful lady that very much um, – cared for us however she was working full-time at the time so you know wasn't really able to help out a lot but she was great um but yeah no I mean I joke because when I had um my second child I didn't really have any friends or know anyone and the Willie um Matt was driving in with our eldest, um, Isabella, and she threw up in the car seat everywhere. She became unwell, and he didn't want to bring a sick child onto the maternity ward, you know, with a newborn baby. So Matt and Bella couldn't visit me. So I had no visitors and no one. No. And so what? I had no friends, no, no family. Matt couldn't come in. And so my visitor was a social worker. And she oh. came in and she's asking me all these questions. <laughs> and I laugh about it now. I think she's like, oh, gosh, here we've got one for, you know, postnatal depression here. And I, I actually probably did have a little bit of postnatal depression, although it wasn't diagnosed. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it was it was a challenging time for sure. And um, I did have one lovely person I just met come a few days afterwards. So, so I had um, – but, yeah, no, it was – it was a difficult time and I think, you know, just starting a new life again um, in a new country, yeah, was challenging. Just, just that moment in itself would have hit home all of those things, I imagine, because you, you, I guess you fast forward to the birth of your next child where you meet and eat a lot of people and everyone wants to come visit, right? So that must have been so difficult and that's um, – Yeah, well, period. when I had my third child, I had a good friend by then that was also pregnant. And I remember um, being at home and getting that little text message from my friend saying, um, just pleased to announce the birth of Madison, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm saying, okay, um, just going into labor, see you in a few hours. <laughs> and I literally, <laughs> she was upstairs and I gave birth to, to Will and, and I had a, a friend in the maternity ward. So that was really lovely. And we sat and chatted and uh, with our newborn. So yeah, very oh, different good. experience a few years later, but, um, Brilliant. Yeah. So good. It's, <laughs> it's, it's reminded me of our uh, first child, Sim, similar but very different. So so uh, Hayley came really quite fast and it was quite traumatic for Kate and the, the sounds that were coming out of that room would have been scary. Anyway, one of our friend's friends were there and they heard the sounds when they were going in and so their first child they're terrified because they're hearing these ungodly noises <laughs> much different experience but um yeah exactly. it's not always like that i promise <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good um okay so that was the first real big moment in your life but then we fast forward to the next like literally life-changing moment so if, could you mm. share a bit about that and how that really uh yeah, yeah. sure um if I'm, my voice goes wobbly I still find it challenging I'm happy to talk about it I actually yeah. really like talking about my brother but um people often don't want to ask that because I do have you know it's also upsetting at the same time yeah but probably the next big moment was when I lost my brother and he was in the UK 
and um, it was a real shock. I, I came, I came, ho- <clears throat> I came home, and Matt and my mother-in-law were at my house. I'd been out for coffee actually with a friend, and um, I was like, "Oh, what are you doing here?" And they just both looked like ashen, and mm. um, and Julie said, "I'm going to just take." take the girls and I had just given birth to Will so I took um I said well I just need to put Will down for a nap they're like okay I was feeding him so I fed him and put him down and then yeah Matt just said look your dad's called us and your brother's passed away and then I don't really remember much it was just a huge shock um and then I had to get I I didn't have a passport for Will because you know he was just a newborn so and actually, I hadn't. My, I'd let my own passport expire. There's a lesson for us all here. Never. I, said, I will always have an upstate passport now because you never know when you're going to need to travel when you're from a different country. Um, and so my lovely husband drove down to Canberra at like three o'clock in the morning and was like, um, I've got to help my wife get on this flight. She's got to get back to the UK. And so he sorted it out and I, I went back but um just a lot of numbness in that early stage classic i mean i've done a lot of reading on grief and and understand it much better now but it's really about you know um the grief hitting you but you being so numb to get through what you need to get through so I flew back. I luckily had a, a beautiful friend in Singapore that I stopped off with for just a night so that I could put William to bed and feed him there. And they saw me on the plane. And um, I got back to my parents to help to arrange the funeral. And I actually did see my brother, which I'm glad I did because when you have um, when you have a death that is overseas. I'm told now that, you know, not seeing them in can really make it hard for you to get to the point of acceptance where you, you know, because mm. I didn't see him every day once I moved here. So actually um, acknowledging that, that he had passed and, and I actually prayed over him with my mum, you know, that provided a little bit of closure in that very early stage. Yeah. But I was still very numb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I've thought about this a lot with, with different people, like that plane trip, like just goes for so long. Yeah, So long. I was blessed that I had Will. When you've got a baby, yeah. your motherly instincts mm. kick in. I had to feed him. I had to eat. Um, you don't feel like eating, but I had to keep something going for for him. And he was a precious little baby in my arms. So, you know, your motherly instinct kicks in to be strong for him. And I also felt like I just, you know, I tried to be strong for my parents because, you know, the grief of losing a child, there was, well, it's just extremely hard and 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 my parents were never the same thereafter um but also i again after seeing a grief counselor have learned that the sibling the loss of a sibling now a sibling relationship is the only relationship in your life where you share your whole life with them 
So what I mean by that is your husband you meet whenever you meet them, a wife or whoever, and your parents, you know, will tend to sadly pass away as you get into middle age or whenever. Um, Whereas your sibling, you have, you know each other as as a toddler, as a child. On your, on your family holidays, you're at each other's weddings usually. Um, usually, you know, you'll see the birth of your children and, and, and or if they get married. And, and through your life, when your parents usually pass, you're with your sibling arranging the funeral or, um, or talking through their wishes, ideally. I know that there's some family dynamics that don't allow for that, and I appreciate that. But yeah. for me... That was where the loss came from, that you know, and particularly since you know, as you know, losing the parents, I've been always like, I've done everything on my own. Thankfully, I've got a supportive husband, um, and he's fantastic, but he's not my blood in terms of James would have been the person I would have arranged everything with, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hmm. how do you reconcile that when? when something like that is taken away because even even though we we go through the process and we understand and all these sorts of things like it still must be you must feel ripped i mean okay i can put put words into your mouth do you feel like Mm. you've been ripped off because you haven't because of all those experiences that you haven't got to experience with james um i don't anymore no i don't i've i've reached a point of acceptance and that's taken a lot of steps to get there um, yeah. So maybe maybe but, for, for uh, people going through that, that might be like how yeah. okay just to talk through. Well, how did you get through those steps to to, to, yeah, to arrive? I'm happy to those? talk through that. Um, I, again, this is my journey, so I'm not saying you know um, that this will work for everyone, but this is just how I got to that point. I think initially going over there, being with my family in the UK, and then coming home. For me, um, I'm not saying this is the right thing, but I launched myself into work and I was like working and I was doing everything. I was caring for the kids. Um, And I thought, you know, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going because that was the sort of person I was. But unfortunately for me, I hadn't dealt with it. And so about six to eight months after, Matt and I had a disagreement, nothing major, just a, a small marital disagreement and it set me over the edge I was crying and crying crying and then I was crying in bed and I couldn't get out of bed and I just said like this is not normal what's going on and I went to the GP um I thought I might need an antidepressant I didn't know um some counseling maybe unfortunately I didn't see a very helpful GP um but nevertheless, they did a mental health plan for me and suggested I go and see a counsellor. So I started seeing a grief counsellor probably about six to eight months after James passed. And then I think that's when the work started. And in the first few sessions, I just sat there and bawled. I cried and I cried. She must have thought, who is this nutcase? No, she wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> but, you know, I was just, it was like I was letting it all out. On the, in a safe little room because I could with yeah. someone that didn't really know me. I was just crying and just kept saying, I miss him, I miss him, I miss him. Oh, it makes me feel sad now saying it. But, um, yeah. you know, and so that's when the work started on myself and she gave me strategies. I started reading books. 
I, I realized that what I was feeling was normal, you know, the shock, then the anger, then the upset, and just starting to process it. Um, and I think because it was a shock, now I've lived through walking through someone dying next to me with cancer and the shock. And there is no, there is no easy, there is no easy way. I've heard some people say, oh, a bit easier. This. I don't think it's easier either, either way. It's just no. a, diff- a different walk, a different process when you have someone yeah. that knows that they are dying. You have perhaps time to get plans in order to ask their wishes to, um, you know, plan a few things on the practical side in terms of estate planning and things like that. But, I mean, really, it's still no easy journey. Yeah. No. And I think people who's, who may be suggesting that, from my experience, it's usually early on when the whole wave mm-hmm. of it hasn't really mm-hmm. hit. And it's interesting you say there it sort of came late for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something you said there is something that I've heard so many times and I think it's really important for us to to just reiterate. You said, I know you were joking, you said, oh, she must have thought but because you know that she's not, is the amount mm-hmm. of people who have said to me, oh, this is going to sound this or you must be mm. thinking this, and it's like, mm. no, that's not what dealing with grief mm. looks like. It's actually mm. completely unique for everyone. Whatever that's you're right. feeling is completely normal, It's and it's okay, and if there's a whole lot of other stuff coming to the surface as well, that's normal as well. And I know when we connected to, to talk about the possibility of doing this chat uh, about a month ago, these are the conversations we're having, right, like normalising all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I know you're about to dive in there. What, what were you going to say, sorry? And, it, and it's really different for each. It's really different for each, not, not a grief. So my grief for James was very different to my grief for my dad, which has been very different to the grief for my mum. Yeah. So, you know, for people that sit and um, comment or potential in judgment, I mean, I don't have a problem with that because I just think, well, I don't think you maybe have the life experience yet to actually, you know, comment on that. Yeah. Um, so probably best keep your opinions quietly to yourself. But anyway, um, yeah. for those that have been through any journey, it's very interesting to ask them what has been your experience. But I do think people are very reluctant to talk about it because you do get an emotional response. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, that, that can be confronting. People don't like to upset people. They think they're being kind, and I get that. I get that. But I do like it when people ask me because significant doubt, and I really value that. I think it's important that we remember those people who are grieving. Mm. Yeah, and they're always with you. Mm. Yeah, oh, I just I want to just uh, validate what you said. There is like, it, if you're not sure what to say, just say something or ask a question and allow it to unfold. Because even mm. though it may be upsetting, it's just so valuable. Like I, mm. I remember days after Dad passed away, I'm like, I don't want to talk to anyone but I just want someone to call, which makes no sense, right? 
like I wanted to keep it myself, but I also wanted to have a space where I could talk to someone that wasn't in my immediate vicinity that we'd already, you know, family, you've, you sort of, you say all that you need to say, but it's just good to hear a different voice. So any conversation is valuable. Um, so, and it's like, like that little sketch you may have seen with Winnie the Pooh or Piglet and he just sits down next to him and he's like, I'm sorry you're feeling sad. I'm going to sit next to you. I'm just going to sit next to you. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing. I'm just going to be here. I'm just going to be by your side. And that's very well. He's just let me be. Like I... I'm not a, I don't really watch TV or um, have time for things like that. I'm usually training people in the evening or doing chores and I'm not a big TV lover. And then that month or six weeks after mum died and it's very hectic arranging the funeral, doing everything. And I came home and I just watched Netflix so much. Netflix, usually crime shows. Like I never watched, I was just obsessed with crime shows. Matt was saying, oh, what are you going to do? You're like, it's all about these murderers of death row. And that's really, and I just thought, you know, I just, I'm switching off. I'm zoning off and I'm really enjoying this, but um, just let me be, just let me be. You know what I mean? And so yeah, it was yeah, different again and, or, or watching a whole series of something in a few days, which again, isn't like me, but, you know, sometimes you just need to do that. Yeah. And that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because that's what I found myself doing at different stages too was like watching more of that sort of crime stuff like Sopranos uh, and then I went Sons of Anarchy and then I started having nightmares about people getting killed and I'm like, I probably pushed this too far. But but I wonder if it's <laughs> like you're watching these experiences where at least it's allowing you to feel emotions even if it's vicariously so that you can yeah. process. Yeah, I know. Or, you know, watching something like Bridgerton, which is a love story, which, you know, you know, like a bit of happiness and love, good happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, you mentioned the, you know, like the, the connection with your brother I can't remember mm. the words you, you, you said, but we, we were talking about this um, when, we, when we connected a while back. And it's like when, when people pass, it's kind of acceptable that you talk about talking to them in those mm. early days and, and like saying what you need to say. But then maybe a couple of years down the track, I think you said, but then it's like people kind of might look at you a bit strange. But to me, mm. it's like whatever we can believe we're connecting to, whether it's the memory or the energy or if you believe in talking to someone from the other side, it doesn't matter. But there is so much value from a healing perspective to be able to have that conversations and to be able to feel like you're connecting in a way that is meaningful, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, again, it depends on your personal stance. Like I, I have a faith, so I do believe um, in heaven and, you know, I do get some comfort from that and, if you believe there is an afterlife or something thereafter, then uh, for me it, it would be even harder to think, well, that's it, you know, that's it. I like to believe and I do believe that, that they are re reunited, they're together, and I 
can talk to them. I can pray yeah. to or, or whatever your medium is. You know, that's that's what I think. Um, I think there's comfort in that for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Going a little bit deeper again, have you? And I've asked a few people this, and got some interesting answers. Have you ever got the sense that that maybe that like a sign that they were there? The the, the guy I spoke to last oh, week, yeah. Carl. Yeah. yeah, he was talking about oh, like this yeah. moment with flowers uh, falling down at a time when he was kind of asking those questions, and and it's yeah, so yeah, yeah, please do share. I've definitely had moments um, where I felt a presence or um, like a spiritual moment, and yeah. I, I think it's them, but I, you know, you just you you have that. Am I reading too much into it? Is it but you know, I, I get comfort. So one one of those for me would be when James for me running after James died was quite healing. I just put my runners on and go out and yeah. push myself and, and have quiet times. And I decided I was gonna I just got up, I hadn't even trained for it. Don't do this, guys. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> running a half marathon and not training, but I just got up and I said to to Mount. I'm going to go to Centennial Park and I'm running a half marathon. There's one on there. And um, I hadn't trained properly for it. I just did it purely as a mental release. Um, and the pain that, I, that I'm feeling through the, uh, uh, it was for me. Um, and I sort of started off this half marathon and everyone's zooming past me because I'm not super fast and zooming past passing past and then um the wind was picking up and it was a really strong wind and in the back half of the half marathon when normally i would expect to be slowing up when i haven't done a proper training schedule i just felt the wind sort of pushing me along it was a really strong wind and and i started overtaking everyone else like all these people had run past me in the beginning and i i did not stop running once i just kept going in the wind and i felt like I felt like the wind or the Holy Spirit or whatever way you want to look at it was pushing me along and it was James and he knew that I was doing that for him and he was with me, if that makes sense. So, I mean, there have been a few things and, and usually it is when I'm pushing myself physically that I feel that connection um, and I turn the pain, whether it's weightlift, say that everything when you exercise has to be painful. I'm not saying that at all. But for me, and I know for other people that are runners or that have done an exercise, that they do feel like it's, it's very therapeutic, it is, you know, to, to release that or something that could take you in a neighbor spiral. Because I have to say, if I had fitness and exercise in my life, I could have so gone down the alcohol route just when James died because I was a – stay-at-home mom with three babies, um, you know, you could open a bottle of wine at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if you chose to. You know, it was that kind of – the only thing that was stopping me was I would teach a class when Matt came in with tag team. He'd come in, I'd go teach at the time, stepping drinking. <laughs> so I didn't drink alcohol then. But I certainly – certainly can relate to how alcohol would become a prop for you if you uh, were grieving. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
some of that was dropping out, uh, so I apologise for those listening. But what what I got was when you were talking about the the wind behind you was just I got goosebumps all over. Like, and to me, that's all the confirmation I need that yeah, it's it's a presence there that's that's meant to be there to connect you to that. Oh, beautiful. Um, and so I can definitely relate to that. That uh, what you said there, because. Um, because alcohol has been a crutch for me at different points in my life. And I hadn't really thought about that from a perspective that you were talking about. Like, so you're, you're a, you're a mum. you're hurting, you've got these children you're looking after, but then you've got a whole lot of spare time to be what, lost in your thoughts, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that the routine of cooking a dinner, um, for your toddlers and whatever, you know, it's the perfect time. So many people, uh, so many people that I have trained that have been stay-at-home moms have, have drunk, started drinking at like four or five o'clock. And mm. it's easily, you know, easy to have a bottle of wine. It's been, um, I would say it's a problem. It's definitely yeah. a problem. Probably like a lot of these things bigger than what most of us will appreciate. Mm. So are you, are you okay, Christine, if I just dig a bit deeper around some of these moments and actually what that actually felt like with your, with your brother and your parents? Mm. So when mm, so you've been through this experience with your, your brother and then and then you said then your dad gets a diagnosis and it's not just about him passing but then having to go through and support him through that illness. When, when he started to get sick, mm. did your thoughts turn to James and did you, did you have thoughts about that, that time and thinking about what you, the future might hold for your dad or was it more just helping him manage and just throwing yourself into that? Yeah, I think um, I didn't dwell on James. I was very much, um, okay, this is what we need to do in this situation. So I tend not to dwell. Um, I just got a phone call, 3 o'clock, 3.30. Oh, back. Sorry, yes, back. you're back now. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know what happened there. I lost connection for a second. Sorry. No, I, I wasn't dwelling. I, I sort of got a phone call to say Dad had been at the doctor feeling dizzy and he'd had blood pressure issues, so we thought it was connected to that. <clears throat> and they took him um, to the John Hunter Hospital and did a scan and they found – so I just drove straight to Newcastle um, – and that was like four o'clock. By six o'clock, I was sitting, the brain surgeon was telling me it was a brain tumor and they needed to operate. Um, a really pivotal moment in my life. Again, you know, we can all think back just a 10 minute conversation, everything shifts. Yeah. Um, so two days later, he had brain surgery. Um, amazing brain surgeon did a fantastic job. But then they biopsy the tumor and they tell you what it is. And it was a GBM, which is a glioblastine multiform, which is a highly aggressive tumor. 
um, and it is a terminal tumour. He'd done a really good job of getting most of it out. However, just a couple of cells left will eventually grow back. So he had um, radiation and oral chemo, which kept it at bay, and he had a really, really good 12 months. Uh, Was it 12 months? Maybe 10 months. He was quite well, um, relatively speaking. Obviously, he couldn't walk properly, but gradually he declined. And then when it came back, they came back and spread very quickly, and and it was was a, a quick decline, I would say. But... Looking, looking back, um, a lot of people were saying to me, oh, how are you doing? How are you coping? I was driving to Nelson Bay twice a week because I had to you know, help them with shopping and there's so many medical appointments and things, as you mm-hmm. probably know, when you've got cancer. And, and nobody else in Australia but me of their family. Um, and so, you know, driving up and down, driving up and down, three kids, trying to keep a small business going. Yeah, in hindsight, it was a, a really stressful time. And he had a lot of anxiety about 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 death. I think that's quite common. Um, yeah. He wasn't the sort of person that would go and chat to a counsellor. So he chat to me and he chat to mum. And that, so <clears throat> that was quite a lot um, a privilege to support him, but also... Uh, quite a lot for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was that like when you when you were? Because I know it's exhausting if you're not, or particularly if you've got a lot of other stuff going on. It's exhausting to to be able to hold space for someone while they're having those conversations, particularly while you're going through the challenge of watching the decline of your dad as well. Like, how how did you how did you get through that time? Look, it was in enormously stressful it was there's no denying that because you know that last Christmas he's here I'm feeling like I've got to make this a really good Christmas you know I want this to be so nice for everyone yeah and you're trying to be upbeat and he was really upbeat he was really well he really really wanted to make it fun and he was so good he was so brave and he never complained and I'm not just saying that everyone says he really gave like really gave everything to make the kids laugh. and But we all knew, and, you know, I remember looking at William's face and we knew, like, this is his last Christmas lunch and, you know, it's 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 a very difficult thing to navigate and to talk to, and, you know, and to explain death to children that ask lots of questions about it, potentially their first experience because, you know, they were too young when James died, to thankfully, to, to have felt that, really. Yeah. I mean that in the nicest possible way. Again, you know, they didn't really know him or were too young. Well, Will was just a baby, newborn baby. But they know my dad. They loved my dad. You know, he was a great grand, you know, grandfather to them. And, you know, it, it's just such a lot, such a lot to, to support them, to support my mum, to support, you know, oh, it, a, a really, a really tough time. Mm. Mm. Did it put strain on like every area of your life? Like I, I imagine for you and Matt, like you're going, you're coming and going, you've got all these different things going on. You're trying to do a business. He's he's working. He's probably doing long hours at different times. Like, yeah. like how, how did you two manage through that, which must have been just 
yeah, like I can't even imagine. Yeah. Oh, good question. I mean, by the grace of God, I don't know. Um, yeah, thankfully, we did and we've grown through it. And there have definitely been arguments along the way when I've been tired or not wanting to communicate and he's trying to support me and I'm quiet. But I think when you've been with someone over 20 years and you can say, look, it's not you. I'm just exhausted. You just, I just want, like I'd come in and I wouldn't have anything left to give them. And that's tough. And, you know, and you feel this enormous, am I doing a good enough job being a mum to the Mm. kids? Because I'm always up there and I'm trying to do my best there. And I know a lot of people that I've trained have spoken about this sandwich generation where, you know, our kids are still needing us, but our parents need us too. But you see I think what intensified the situation for me was knowing it was just me. So, you know, if I'd had a brother or a sister to say, can I have this weekend off and you go up and see them this weekend or can you do a shop and et cetera, if I'd had that extra support. Again, my mother-in-law was not far away and she did a great job of helping me out. So I did have a little bit of support from her. Um, so I wasn't doing it completely on my own, but the main burden of it fell on my shoulders. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if you've looked at it this way, but I, I just see, just from what I know of where you've been and where you are now, is just an incredible strength that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Do, do you see mm. that? I know it hasn't happened in the most pleasant circumstances, but do you like? Can you identify how this whole process has made you stronger? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, and there is a thankfulness for that because I truly believe that we only grow or we grow the most when we're under pressure the most. And it's not pleasant and it's not pretty, but, you know, I am a far more considerate, outward-looking person than I was before I had been through this. When I think back to my teenage years, I was quite selfish, quite consumed about what I wanted, quite materialistic. Um, And, you know, and I have to show grace to my teenagers when I see some of those behaviours. I think, well, I was like that. You know, I was interested in the clothes and, you know, what car I got next. and, And I don't really care about that so much anymore. I mean... I like to be comfortable, no doubt, but um, I'm not. I'm not really interested in any of the other stuff. And I will say that North Shore Sydney is very much like that, um, yes. and it's one part of of life that I I'm not like bringing my children up here has had many blessings and had so many opportunities. And Australia is a fantastic com- country, but the North Shore attitude, some of them, I don't. I don't relate to and I don't really um, – I try to get the kids to see it from a different angle. We do. Matt and I try and get the kids to see it from a different angle because yeah. – um, but absolutely. I mean, you, you, we, what do we tell our kids, you know, and, and what do we model? You know, the, the best plants don't grow out of the best soil. They grow out of the, you know, the windiest conditions when they're tested and they're strained and they're pulled. And, you know, yeah. that's who they're the plants that grow the strongest, you know. And, and with the right and I do fertilizer. Believe that. Yeah. And with the right yeah. fertilizer yeah. from the shit, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> go to Slack. <laughs> yeah, that'll be one second. You're right. Just getting something. Sorry. Yeah. You're right. Um, yeah. So another one of those areas of grief that that can be sometimes seen as difficult to to talk about because it does make us stronger and it does give us things to be thankful for. And I, I think particularly early stages of grief is trying to reconcile that. The more that we can get past the different things, I'm not saying that's easy. That's why, you know, like you described, you go to have counselling and you, and you go and get support in different places, is that the more that you can be appreciative, grateful, thankful for all of the positive that does come out and be able to do it in the space where you're not feeling guilty about that. Like even laughing mm. about, about different memories. And mm. like, I can remember, I don't know if you can relate to this, but the, the, the minutes, hours, days afterwards laughing and then going, Oh, should I, I shouldn't be laughing. And, and then, and then that sort of continues for, for a long time. Like, is that something you can relate to yourself of like, like just struggling with the, the full range of emotions that comes through through those moments? I think, I think our family laughter is, is truly a medicine. And I think um, having a sense of humour in all, in all um, situations is really important. And it certainly kept us going. I mean, I'll share with you a really beautiful, sad but beautiful story. So when mum was, um, she declined very quickly. So it was about nine days and I went up there and was with her and I phoned home and I said, Matt, I think you need to bring the kids up. I think this is her last weekend. And so they all came up and when my mum she was semi-conscious and was on morphine at this stage. When my mom heard Matt's voice, she started chuckling. She started laughing. <laughs> he hadn't even said anything. And the reason that happened is every time Matt sees my mom, he makes a laugh. He tells a joke. He does a funny voice. He does a skit from a TV show. She likes. He, he always makes a laugh. Yeah. He heard, she heard his voice and she laughed. Brilliant. And, and that was the last memory that Matt and Will had. They left the room and she was chuckling at him, oh, like this. In this subconscious, because they say your hearing was the last thing to go. And so Matt said, I'm not quite sure how to take that because she was laughing. Maybe she, maybe she just thinks I'm the family clown. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so sweet because it was just, it, it sort of was typical of their relationship that um, – that was lighthearted, that she liked to have a bit of a laugh with him. And so even in like those really sad moments, I think laughter does break it up and um, keeps you sane. And yeah, so I think it's a really important part of the process. But you don't always feel like laughing. There'll be sometimes you just can't get there. But yeah, um, in, in terms of your healing, I think it's important, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now we talked a bit about today about you know we're, we're role modelling for our children through through all of this process and moments with your brother and your parents. Like, what have you learnt that you're going to take forward yourself? Not to teach specifically your mm. children, but that you know will make you a better person to be able to take forward in the rest of your life, which will which will 
allow you to be a role model for not just your children, but just for everyone that sees mm. you? Well, I think certainly from arranging, you know, the funerals and from being at the funerals, I think we can all probably agree that nobody really talks about what you've got. It's more who you are yeah. and the relationships that you've had. So that for me is is the number one thing. You know, you could have one or two good friends and then be the salt of the earth and be with you for your whole journey and, you know, how lucky are you to have them. So it's really nurturing those relationships. Um, you know, your family. <clears throat> to me, my family are everything. Couldn't have got through it. And, you know, and I call my family Matt's family, so the extended family. I've got, got a sister-in-law. I've never had a sister, but I've got a sister-in-law, a brother-in-law. I've got nieces and nephews, a beautiful mother-in-law now who, you know, is that role model. She's the only person we've got for, for all of our grandkids, for my grandkids, <clears throat> you know, at that sort of age and and level and aunties and, and, and uncles that have been very dear and cousins and that's so... I, and I still have my family and the Isle of Man and in England that I'm hoping to go back and see. But it's really, it's really about relationships and doing things. So spending money on creating memories rather than um, designer handbags and, 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 and fancy cars. I mean, I still like a handbag, I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> still, um, but, you know, it's really the important stuff. And I think that's the main thing I try to get the kids to, to see because, as I mentioned earlier, um, the North Shore can be very much. And it's like HSC's upcoming. I think um, Matt and I are probably only, you know, so how do I say this? Olivia was having a conversation with someone at school and she said what she was interested in doing and what ATAR she needed. And the girl responded, oh, my God, my parents would kill me if I got that ATAR because it wasn't a high-flying ATAR. And I said, oh, well, aren't you lucky that, you know, that's all you need then. Like, yeah. It's not even a low ATAR and she might not get it either. But the yeah. point is yeah. I don't mind as long as she works hard and does her best and that I know and you know won't define her life in any way, shape or form. If she wants to do that course, she'll get on it in some way. Um, I think the pressure is on people and I think – there's a real lack of being a genuine person. I think there's a lot of fake um, status and um, Instagram and friendships about who's popular. Popularity is a real key thing. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really for us just about being real, being honest, being who you are, being transparent, telling the truth. That seems quite rare in um, some areas. And knowing yeah. who you are. Yeah. Mm, love it. Well said. I think uh, the comparison, whether you're in the North Shore, which I'm on with you, I see a lot of that, or whether you're in any other part of the world, it still happens, right? They're keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Um, yeah. Just the comparison doesn't do us any justice, like whether it's comparing to people who have got it better or comparing it to people who we might perceive to not have it as well. It's either giving us an inflated version of where we're at, or or a deflated, which is not fair, right? It's just just your own journey, and and as you said, being making experiences and relationships the priorities is the is the important things. Yeah, and and you know, of course, I appreciate that in Sydney it's an expensive place to live, and um, you've got to make a living, and I understand all of that, 
but I just think that if you have salt, then um, and you put that as your priority. Um, and then I would say with that, being a Christian, you know, a faith element as well, whatever your faith may be, that community yeah. and um, and connection is also a fundamental part for me. <coughs> Excuse me. Well said. Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. Christine, thank you so much for sharing so openly and for shining Thanks a light on... Me. You're welcome. Shining a light on what's possible even after going through three extremely traumatic events and and also for yeah just showing if you if you prioritize the right things and as you said your family but also things that you know are going to bring you more health and well-being then even through the the darkest times you can still come out the other side with with so much joy right mm. i've got a little reading here Ian that was given to me by palliative care that I thought yeah. um, you might like to hear um, yeah, please. it's yeah it's very short it just says I had my own notion of grief and I thought it was the sad time that followed the death of someone you love and you had to push through it to get to the other side but I'm learning there is no other side there is no pushing through but rather there is absorption, then adjustment, and then acceptance. And grief is not something you complete, but rather you endure. Grief is not a task to finish and move on, but an element of yourself, an alteration of your being, a new way of seeing, a definition of self. Oh, can you just read that last bit? You said a new way of seeing, because it just dropped out a bit there. Am I back? Sorry, connections. Yes. Grief, grief is not a task to finish and move on, but an element of yourself, an alteration of your being, a new way of seeing, a new definition of self. Beautiful. Christine, thank you so much. I appreciate you having this time with me and sharing so openly, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.